Welcome back to Soldier Dog. Chapter 8, September 10th, 1917. Chatham, Kent. The vast and bleak parade ground was surrounded by barracks, offices, and the entrance gates. Fear kept drawing Stanley's eyes like the needle of a compass toward the gates. Dad might stomp through them at any minute, shouting for all to hear, 14, the daft twerps only 14. Dad would see the ill-fitting uniform, see the pants which billowed around his son's buttocks, see the pate, the bandage-type stocking that was in danger of unwinding at his right ankle, already unraveling at his knee. Dad would mock him and haul him home. Stanley scanned the faces of the new recruits. No, no one here looked as young as he did. Parade, shun, left, turn, quick, march, double, left, right, left, right, pick up your knees, left, right, left, right. Company Sergeant Major Quigley had a stout neck, an athletic figure, hair as glossy as a blackbird, and a ferocious mustache with long, waxy ends that sometimes took on a life of their own. His tongue was like a rasp. His voice could probably be heard a mile away. The man was in his element, born to lead the 6 a.m. PT parade. But he was also a sort of relic, left over, perhaps, from an earlier war. Stanley's eyes flickered towards the gates. Even if Dad did come, Stanley would never go home again. Double, left, right, left, right. A smile played on Quigley's lips as he increased the pace. Stanley's petit was traveling further. Double, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. Quigley's foghorn voice belted out instructions faster and faster until the men were racing around the yard. Stanley couldn't concentrate because of the unraveling petit. Quigley would spot him and single him out, would know he was too young, and send him home. At least Stanley had a uniform and a cap. Half of the men were still in mufti, as home clothes were known here. It wasn't like the pictures in the posters, the slack of beds and plates and uniforms. Everyone had about turned except Stanley, who found himself face to face with Hamish McManus. Hamish had the bed next to Stanley. That morning, no one else had spoken to Stanley, but Hamish, with a frank and friendly smile, had said, Watch out for yourself, laddie. They'd steal the milk from a baby's bottle here. Now Hamish put a hand on Stanley's shoulder to turn him around, but not before Quigley had seen Stanley facing the wrong way. Quigley marched over, eyes sparking, and halted uncomfortably close to Stanley. Get that haircut. Are you a soldier, hmm? Or an artist? Get some fluff on that upper lip before I see you again. Stanley felt the man's breath on his face as his baton prodded the troublesome petit. Your mother won't be here from now on to dress you in the morning. N no, sir. There it was again. That dryness, the splintering words. This pair of pants is too loose, sir. Quigley looked so bewildered, and perhaps he hadn't heard Stanley properly, but now he recovered his flow. Choir boys and milksops, that's what I've been sent. Quigley's mustache twitched with mirth. 
And if any of you want to go home, hmm, and see your m mothers again, I'll first make soldiers of you, his voice rose, or I'll die in the attempt. Someone on the other side of the yard tittered. Quigley swiveled on a sixpence, nimble enough to catch a smirk on the face of a tall, thin man. And I'll teach you not to laugh on parade, Fidget. I don't want to see a smile on your milk-white mug till kingdom come. Stanley felt a gentle squeeze on his shoulder and turned. Hamish smiled at him, a warm, tranquil smile, and whispered, The sergeant major's just a bully, laddie. Just a bully. Yes, thought Stanley. Just a bully. I left home, left one bully, only to run into another. Everyone, on all fours, now, up, down, up, down, up, down. Stanley's eyes watered as pain seared his muscles. He must blot out the burning pain in his arms. He closed his eyes and at once visions of soldier and of the dark lake flooded his head. A solitary circle rose on the surface of the water that he saw in his mind. It rippled outward, unleashing a tidal wave of anger that surged through Stanley. Charged with raging pain, on he went, up, down, up, down, till he was the last man still going. Six weeks inched past. Stanley had got used to Quigley's mockery, got used to the food, to the rules and the regulations of army life. If he wasn't hopping up and down, he was being inspected. He was always being inspected. Everything had to be done just so. Blankets folded just so. Shoes shined just so. Subservience and obedience, laddie, Hamish had said to him as they folded their blankets. They want them to run in your blood. Hamish was right. In the army, you must never think for yourself, and you must always obey, however pointless the exercise. You must always have shiny boots or be punished with three days of water and biscuits if they told you to. Stanley would keep on doing everything just so. Keep his head low, his boots clean, his blankets folded, and he'd eventually be sent to France, where Tom was, and Quigley wasn't. Hamish and his brother James were both in Stanley's unit. They were both clear-browed large men, born to big hills and deep valleys. James, the older of the two, was a little morose, but Stanley liked and trusted them both. Everyone was progressing to specialist training. For Stanley, there'd be two extra weeks of parade drills, bayonet fighting, musketry, route marching, wheeling about to the right and the left, inclining and forming squads. He alone among his batch of recruits had been ordered to do two more weeks of basic training, two weeks longer to get to France. Stanley's companions were lining up for the canteen, their mood jubilant. There'd been a success in France at Cambrai. Church bells had rung today for the first time. Had Tom been there at Cambrai? The country had clutched at something to celebrate after Passchendaele. 140,000 casualties for a five-mile advance. Had Tom been there at Passchendaele? As each man turned the corner into the canteen, he looked at a list pinned to the orderly room door. That was how you knew if you had a parcel. But Stanley never looked. 
there'd never be a parcel for him. So it was better not to think about it. Better just to concentrate on counting days. Stanley, have they sent you anything? James and Hamish were both looking at the notice. Stanley shook his head and turned away. Hamish and James might get parcels of jam and chocolate, Stanley was thinking. But he never would. Not till Tom knew where he was. No one knows, do they, that you're here, said Stan Hamish quietly. Not expecting an answer, he continued. But we know, and we'll take care of you. Stanley took a place at the table next to Hamish, opposite James. James picked up the loaf of bread, made of grit and granite, he said, weighing it in his hand before passing it to Stanley. Needs lots of margarine, so it's easier to chew. The surface of the table was swimming in sloshed tea. Each man slopped tea into his jar from a basin in the middle of the table. Tea wasn't at its best in a jam jar, but when you were tired, it was good that it was strong and sweet. The tall man called Fidget, who'd snickered on parade that first morning, slipped himself in between Stanley and Hamish and placed a parcel on the table where everyone could see it. All of Fidget was long and colorless, like a weed grown too fast in a dark cupboard, and he had a habit of sliding into places where he wasn't especially welcome. Fidget's hands fluttered over his parcel. His darting gooseberry eyes widened and his mouth opened to a slack smile. From my sister, she sends one every week. Fruitcake. The loose smile was interrupted by a sudden thought. Do you get parcels, Stanley? Fidget's face was too mobile, his eyes the color of army tea. Fidget meant no harm, but unable to answer, Stanley looked down. He scribbled with his forefinger in the tea on the table. Do you get parcels, Stanley? asked Fidget once more. The doodle in the tea had a tail and a long snout. Don't say much, do you, Stanley Ryder? Once upon a time, Stanley was thinking there'd been tablecloths and honey and a mother to make cakes. Once, there'd been a beautiful oatmeal puppy. Fidget wasn't to be put off. She's a good cook, my sister. Is your mother a good cook? If Stanley answers, his words would stick in his throat. His forefinger swiped out the dog and the tea. Ma had been a lovely cook. Stanley swallowed hard. Hamish put an arm around Stanley's shoulder. Come on, Stanley. The cake in the YMCA hut's better than the army food any day. We're parading for pay tomorrow, and I've got money over from last week. Stanley shot Hamish a grateful smile, and they rose and left. As they made their way past the rank and file of tables, Hamish asked, Do you like dogs? Stanley felt the death of soldier jam like a stone in his throat. He said nothing. Hamish tightened his arm around the boy's shoulders and steered him on. It was good, Stanley felt, to be with Hamish, who was kind and thoughtful, and never minded that Stanley said so little. At the orderly room door, Hamish said, Did you see this? Stanley's throat constricted as he saw the mail list. Not that, Hamish pointed. This. Read this. Working with dogs would be more fun than tunneling with the engineers. I and safer. What do you think? Stanley felt Hamish's gentle eyes on him as he read. The messenger dog service requires men accustomed to working with animals to volunteer. Those interested to apply to Sergeant Quigley. Dogs? Messenger dogs? 
How wonderful, Stanley was thinking, wonderful beyond imagining. Yes, he thought, I'd love that. You'll have had reasons of your own for signing up, and I'll ask no questions. But the front will be no place for you, laddie. The dog service, maybe, would be just the ticket for you. Stanley spread his uniform out on the bed, admiring the R.E. on the color and the embroidered flags, the proud insignia of the Royal Engineers on the left arm. This week had been a good week. Twenty-eight men had been requested for signal school and quickly had instructed Stanley to sign up and do it before his transfer to the messenger dog school. Stanley liked signaling. He liked the lamps and the heliographs and wires. He'd learned that signaling was vital in a war that was trench-based, where so much depended now on messages being sent to and from the front lines. Those messages sent by telegram, dispatch rider, radio, by telephone, wireless, or pigeon could make the difference to the success or failure of an operation, and Stanley was proud to be part of the signal service. He'd done well, too. He passed first class in the signaling examination, and now he had a new issue, a great coat. He was proud of the coat, proud of his regiment, of its history, its dignity, and importance. Stanley smoothed the sleeve with the embroidered flags. A desolate Christmas had come and gone, and still Stanley had heard nothing from Da, from Tom. Had no one even tried to find him? He wondered, as his fingers traced the Ari. They'd be amazed, Da and Tom both, if they knew. He'd like them to see him on parade. Stanley's eyes flickered to the window and the gates beyond, recognizing now, as he looked, that it was hope that drew his eyes to the gates. Hope that Da might come. He'd been here 100 days exactly, and there'd been no word from Da. If Stanley went to the war dog school, he'd most likely be detailed to the Western Front and, if he kept his fingers crossed, to France. He wouldn't write to Tom, not until he got to France. If he wrote before then, Tom might write to Dad and get him sent back home. Tom wouldn't think his little brother's having enlisted was a good thing. I will always be thankful, his postcard had said, that you were too young to fight. Face to face with Tom... Stanley could explain how things had been at home, why he had to leave. Stanley turned from the window, wondering how old Soldier would have been by now, what sort of dog he'd have turned out to be. With a strained glance at the mirror by the door, he straightened his cap. The six men waiting outside Quigley's office were clustered around a cutting pin to the door. Dogs for the army. The War Office requires a further gift of dogs for military purposes. Particulars of the animals required are as follows. Breeds, Danes, Mastiffs, St. Bernards, Newfoundlands, Bull Mastiffs, Retrievers, Collies, Sheepdogs, Large Curs, Dalmatians, Lurchers, Airedales, Crossbred Shepherds. No dogs smaller than Airedale ter Terriers are required. Age between 18 months and 5 years. Sex, no bitches required, only dogs. Dogs should be in the first place offered to the Commandant War Dog School, Shoeberryness. If accepted and approved of, instructions will be sent for forwarding, and any dogs found unsuitable after testing will be returned to their owners, carriage paid. Why had dogs been killed when the army needed them? Bang. Gone. 
coarse meat for France. Dad had been right to be so angry. When they were seated, Quigley addressed them. Here, off the parade ground, the man seemed a little diminished. Your time here has only a few days left to run, gentlemen. You are shortly to receive your transfer to shoeberryness in Essex. The sergeant major's eyes took on a mocking glint. Five weeks seems to be required for the messenger dog service. Five more weeks, Stanley was thinking. So long till I go to France. This service is a new division of the signal service, which, as you know, is itself a division of the Royal Engineers. Unlike all other signal service recruits, you'll no longer be known as pioneers, but as keepers. Quigley's brows rose in open mockery. Colonel Edwin Houghtonville Richardson has been badgering the war office since 1914 to use his dogs. Well, two of his dogs were trialed by the Royal Artillery, and it appears that they carried messages successfully, so the war office has allowed him to establish a dog school. Messages? Stanley was puzzled and captivated. How wonderful to use dogs as messengers. If you fail your training there, you will be returned here. I will not, Stanley thought watching the gleaming mustache twitch. Ever come back here. I will never fall into your hands to be bullied again.